Welcome to my podcast, Follow Your Bliss, with me, Nicola Fisher. I'll be talking to people who inspire me and asking them about the journeys they've taken navigating change and how this has led them to find fulfilment and purpose. If you're on a quest to create a meaningful life for yourself, I hope these conversations inspire you too. This week's guest on my podcast is somebody whose work I've followed for about 10 years and he's been on my wish list as a potential podcast guest for quite some time. He is Mark Matusek, an award-winning writer and memoirist and this conversation was an absolute joy for me and I hope you can hear that in my voice throughout the recording. Mark has written eight books, including Writing to Awaken, When You're Falling Dive and Mother of the Unseen World, which is a biography about Mother Mira. We talk about that and also Mark's collaboration with Ram Das on his last book. As well as being a writer, Mark teaches writing as a route to self-enquiry and he hosts the Seekers Forum, which is Mark's global online community, an inspirational refuge for like-minded people on a spiritual path to explore topics of interest. Mark is hosting a free virtual event on June the 30th called A New Way Forward, Choosing to Live an Awakened Life. If you'd like to know more about this event, you can visit theseekersforum.com for all the details. I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Mark, it was really good to do the workshop a couple of weekends ago with you, the writing workshop with Alternatives, and I really enjoyed that. And it was just great to see you doing what you do as well. And it was lovely for me because I've never met you, so it was a really good opportunity to actually be able to do one of your workshops and one of the things you said which I was really interested in was we are the storytellers not the story Mm. and I've been exploring a bit more of kind of my life story and I'd reached the conclusion that I had to own my story or my story would own me and then I was just interested in your take on that and how you see us as storytellers. Well, we are storytellers in the sense that we're constantly composing our lives. We're constantly reinterpreting our experience through our individual mind and using the language, the descriptions, the narratives that come to us individually, which have nothing to do with what's actually going on around us. You know, it's how we survive is by creating stories. It's how we navigate reality. So we need to acknowledge the stories that we're telling ourselves in order for them not to run us, as you were just saying. But what it also does is we realize once we start to write our stories honestly, uh, that we are not those narratives. We are, those narratives are a way of containing our experience. Uh, They're always limited. Uh, And as long as they're changing, as long as we're willing to change our our, our stories, that's fine. Uh, it's when we start to identify with them so strongly that we believe we are the story rather than the, that we are the narration rather than the narrator, mm-hmm. uh, that we get into trouble. Then we're trapped, then we are 
you know, we become the slave of our own prophecy. You know, that's how we, it becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. And we lose power over choice and conscious, you know, conscious decision making in our lives. So how has your story changed? Oh, my story has changed so many times, Nicola. <laughs> it's hard to even... <laughs> I, I, it, my, my story has changed really, truly many, many times. I've had a pretty uh, dramatic life with some major life changes and transitions. Uh, strong enough, powerful enough to show me without a doubt that the person I thought I had been was just was was a very limited version of what I thought was who I who I actually am and what I thought and what's actually possible. So my story changed when my father abandoned us. My story changed when I uh, got a scholarship to Oxford. My story changed when I got a job working for Andy Warhol in New York because suddenly I, my job didn't change when my friends started to die from from AIDS and I got scared and I quit my job and I went on a Dharma trip for 10 years. You know, my identity changed has changed over and over in my life. And, and the good news about having a, a life with a lot of crises in it, calamities in it, is that it gives you the opportunity to stand back and say, who am I behind all of this? Because clearly the person I thought I was couldn't have gone through the things that he went through. I realized that I'm this witness self, this per, this self that takes many forms and can take many, inhabit many, many stories, but isn't limited to any of them. And, and of course, this is the same for all of us. And that's why I love guiding people uh, through their stories because it's so liberating. They say, my God, I, my whole life spent 60 years. I hear this all the time. I spent 60 years telling myself that I'm a person who can't do that or a person who's scared of this or, or who wants that only to realize that it's a figment of my imagination. It's an old, old narrative. I was told it perhaps by my parents and I've been repeating it ever since. So it's great to, to um, articulate our narratives because then we can reclaim what is actually true for us, which is always changing. So you mentioned that you've had quite a number of pivotal moments in your life. And I'm really interested in how pivotal moments can be catalysts for taking us down new paths and maybe helping us with our personal growth. Could you give us an example of something like that that's happened for you? Oh, gosh. Um, yes. For example, my oldest sister, who I loved very, very much, who was really my surrogate mother when I was growing up, um, committed suicide when I was 21 years old. And it was a traumatic loss for all of us. It was a terrible, painful time. And uh, it was really a big part of my becoming a seeker, because before my sister died, she asked me, she said, how do you live it? How do you do it? I said, do what? She said, how do you live? And it was the first time I had even thought of that question. Uh, and losing her really forced that question home for me. And it became a kind of a mantra in my life. So uh, this terrible tragedy for actually sparked for me a whole life of philosophical seeking and some answer finding and, and a lot of not answer finding. But this, this self-investigation to answer that question, how does one live, which is, of course, the central question of, philo of all philosophy. Uh, and, and I got it when I was 21 and my sister, my sister killed herself. So you, you don't know. I mean, so many of our biggest insights are coming in the darkest packages. And yeah. so it, it's really important not to be too fooled by the give, by the presenting circumstances into thinking that we understand the significance of an event in our lives, because we only do in retrospect. 
in the moment you never know what it's actually giving you. Yeah, I completely understand that. And I have read the story about your sister as well. Mm. I'm interested as well in these these whole pivotal moments that we have. My husband is completely blind and he lost his sight in 2008. Um, and he's gone on to become a wood turner. And I, I know in your book, When You're Falling Dive, yeah. you talk about a blind photographer. And that really resonated with me because that story is so similar in sort of the evolution to my husband. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm just, I'm very fascinated by the whole idea of catalysts in our lives. Yes, and, and catalysts, of course, as you know, come very often out of dark places. You know, the word catastrophe, which may share a root with catalyst, I'm not sure, but it means it comes from the Greek to turn around. And that's what catastrophe does. It turns us around. You know, that's what crisis does, is it, it gives us a, a, an obverse look at things. And it's often not one that we would have chosen, but it is if we are if we use it well and and skillfully if we're open stay open to what's possible uh, it can all they can also become as you say our greatest catalysts and motivators you know the things yeah. that really show us where we're where we're meant to go yeah chris says now and i think the blind photographer said as well that he wouldn't have his eyesight back you know he's really happy with who he is and yeah um i find that just so fascinating and we talk about it a lot one of the things that i do and i've thought about a lot is something that i call the essence map and it's sort of similar in a way to the hero's journey that joseph campbell talks about have you ever, I'm guessing you must have looked at the hero's journey at some point. Sure, and, of course. Sure. Yeah. Again, I, I just think it's, you know, there's a lot to be said about following your bliss and it's all part of the journey that we go through in life. And I think that maybe we're here to follow our bliss and find what brings us joy. I wondered what you thought about that. Oh, I absolutely. That's, yeah, my my motto as well. Actually, that comes from Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, Joseph Campbell got it from Emerson. Oh, did he? Oh, yeah, I didn't who, who, I'm, who I'm writing a book about right now. Oh, cool. And, and it's all about self-reliance in the sense of really trusting what is unique and original to ourselves and, and following that and being deeply non-conformist uh, and, and being willing to say no and stand alone because following one's bliss, as you know, often means saying no into things that other people think, you know, think that you ought to be, you know, ought to be doing, you know, so following our bliss means sometimes going against the current and going against the tide. I'm grateful that I was born stubborn. I, I actually feel I have a lot of compassion for people who weren't, you know, people who are just kind of, you know, more flexible and, and, and willing to compromise. It's harder for those folks. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm stubborn. So I've always kind of done what I felt was right for me. That was my, that was my character. But I know a lot of people who are, you know, intelligent, well-meaning, determined people who are more hung up on being obedient, you know, following the rules or conforming um, that, and can't uh, often break away when their time is, when it's time for them to break away in whatever it is, whether it's a career or a marriage or a spiritual tradition or a country or what, whatever it is, we need to know how to, how to take a new turn.
Yeah. And following your bliss and, you know, means taking new turns because that bliss is, is changing as well. You know, what's bliss for you today was not bliss for you 10 years ago. So we need to keep asking ourselves, what do I deeply want now, particularly after this pandemic and, 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 you know, the racial protests, you know, who are we now? What do we want now? A lot yeah. of folks are asking themselves that those questions really intensely and in new ways. Don't you find? Yeah. And I found that what I've been thinking about over the last week or so is very much about speaking my truth. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, from what you said, I'm a little bit like that too. I'm not very conventional. I find that my thought processes are not necessarily the same as the majority. I kind of go down a different path. Mm -hmm. And then you're thinking, well, is this right? And am I am I saying the wrong thing? Or is it just about speaking your truth? And I've come to the conclusion that I have to speak my truth. And that's part of, for me, finding your place in the world as well. What's What's been your experience? Oh, absolutely. It's all about being honest and in the moment with this changing internal you know, internal life of ours, which needs different things at different times and, and has, has different values and has different fears and has different, you know, passions. And so we have to keep asking ourselves, what is that truth in any given moment so that it guides us? A lot of folks, so as you know, Nicola, don't often ask themselves, what do I really want? You know, so many folks are in the middle of re leading responsible lives, you know, upstanding citizens doing what they're meant to do, but ask them, what do you actually truly want? And sometimes they'll be very stumped at first. Say, well, you know, I haven't asked myself that in years. A lot of folks I work with who are middle-aged, you know, they'll say, you know, I haven't asked, I haven't thought about that for years. There are so many things I have to do that I don't give myself the liberty to think about what really moves me. And that's what yeah. leads to so much depression and sense of personal loss and, and authenticity. You know, what happened to me? What happened? I used to know who I was. What happened to that person? So then, of course, that's the question that drives one on the seeker's journey. Uh, and that's the beauty of that question. It doesn't feel good. It's uncomfortable, but it's an important question to keep asking ourselves. Can you tell us a bit more about the seeker's journey? I know you have um, a group, don't you, um, that people can join as well? I do. Yeah, it's called the Seeker's Forum. Uh, and folks can join us at theseekersforum.com. Uh, and it's a, it's a group I started in 2013, uh, a free monthly uh, drop-in group where I would give a talk on a topic of interest to seekers, you know, finding your tribe, the question of faith, you know, different, different things like that. And I've just loved it. I've been doing it, you know, now for six years and it's a great group. We have people all over the world. I, I do interviews with, with people uh, every month, people, you know, spiritual leaders or, or scientists, people in the arts. And it's a great gathering place for people who don't want to be limited to their tradition. You know, there's nothing wrong with tradition, but we don't want a closed door tradition. You know, you want a tradition that you can mix with everyone. I, particularly nowadays, you know, with people with so much access to so much information, people, you know, Buddhists are interested in Judaism and Judaism, Jews are very often interested in, in, you know, in Christianity. So we need to embrace the, you know, that, that hybrid, stuff that's happening nowadays with spirituality and that's what the secrets forum is about that sounds great just talking about what's been happening recently and the pandemic and um everything that's been happening in the last week or so 
with Black Lives Matter. How do you think we will be changed as a society because of these different global events that are happening now? Uh, well, I hope that one hopes that the, that the positive things coming out of it will last and keep growing. I think the jury is still out, Nicola. I mean, I'm an optimist by nature. I can see all the positive things that can come out of it, like a final reckoning in this country with our, you know, our abhorrent racial uh, history, uh, as well as your, you know, you have your own yeah. in the UK. And, and so hopefully it will become less negotiable for uh, politicians who are racist or who are, are reactionaries, anti-environmentalists to get uh, elected in the future. However, ideology is alive and well. Uh, and here in the United States, we're, we're seeing the, the victory of ideology over morality. You know, and, and folks who are, who are aware that our president is doing immoral things, for example, to the environment, to, to the poor, to deregulation, they're not willing to part with him because they're getting what they want ideologically in terms of you know conservative judges Roe versus Wade wanting that to be overturned so what we're seeing is that people care more about their credos than they do really about the golden rule and and, and kind of universal justice so i think that we're in, i think these are the growing pains i don't know how long it's going to take for the change to really for changes to really happen because mm -hmm. we've seen terrible things happen before, and we've seen this reversion to old ways of being. So, I mean, this is not the first black murder we've had on video. You know, we've had many, 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 nothing has changed. So it feels like things are shifting. And if this happens, then it would be profound for the United States, because that shadow is still driving us. It's the reason that we have the president that we do. So hopefully it's coming to a boil, and it will stay boiling long enough for it to shift. In terms of the pandemic, honestly, I think we've entered a new realm of how we connect, how we look at you know, social life, you know, um, what, what, how we look at safety in general. I, think, I don't think we're ever going to go back to the pre-COVID-19 era of no one thinking about infection, no one thinking about masks. I think that, that those things are here to stay. So it's going to be an adjustment and adaptation, but hopefully we'll be able to get together physically again soon. So it's not all virtual. As nice as it is to have a conversation on Zoom, it doesn't, it's not the same as being able to touch someone. And people are feeling a severe uh, touch deprivation, a kind of a skin hunger, I've heard yeah. folks talk about. And that's that can't be remedied with cyberspace. So we're, I'm hoping that we find new ways of, do, of connecting and that you know, we're able to congregate again, the idea of not being able to go to the theater, of not being able to you know, do many of the things that our civilization is about is sad. And, and so a lot of us are waiting to see what's, what's going to happen and how will it happen? You know, there will be theater, but it will be different. They will have the configurations of things are going to be different. It's unnerving, but it's also interesting to see how this is going to evolve. We have this genius for adaptation, human beings. That's, that's the thing that amazes me. I think there's going to be quite a few positives. In the UK, a lot of people are working from home. And I can't say for sure, but it feels like it's had an impact on the weather and the environment because there's not been as much pollution. And, yeah. uh, you know, people are enjoying not having to drive in. Well, we live near Manchester. So, you know, depending on what time you leave, it can be two hours to get into Manchester. And 
people are enjoying not having that commute mm. uh, and spending more time with their families as well. So I suppose there's there's the the upsides and the downsides. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Now it's a question. It's happening now. It's just a question of how what's going to what's going to continue. You know what's yeah. going, what's going to take you. Of course, I mean you know we have this amazing ability to kind of roll backward and go back to our ha old habits. So we, you know, all of the good intentions in the world may be there, but the force of habit is often stronger. So it's when the danger starts to subside that we have to re start to you know, be vigilant. Say, my mm -hmm. gosh, I'm going right back to that life, that hectic life I said I didn't want. You know, calm down, slow down, and remember the the beautiful stuff about this time. A lot of people are are experiencing family, as you were saying, in their own just their own inner life in a way that they we don't often have time to do in our in our busy busy lives. And, yeah. and that's what that's what people that's what we want to bring with us moving forward. So, what has changed for you whilst you've been? I presume you've also been in isolation. We've been calling it lockdown over here. Mm -hmm. uh, you've been at home, I guess. Yes, I've been home. Um, I was on a west. Co I was teaching on the west coast when all of this hit. In fact, I was in Seattle and came home. and And I've been home for since since mid March. I live in Eastern Long Island, out uh, out of the city and uh, near the beach. And you know, my life is largely unchanged. I have to say, I have a, I, I'm a writer, I'm a teacher, I work from home. Mm -hmm. And um, so aside from not being able to have people over, which is a, a, one of my great joys and do you know, a, a few things out in the world, you know, this has not been that different for, for us, which is strange as well, because you see people going through these extreme changes and then you know, one is pretty uh, privileged you know, to just have privacy, live, live with someone that you like with enough room, you know, mm -hmm. and nature around you. What, what more could you ask? I mean, in, in this, in, at this particular moment. Have you been writing then whilst you've been at home? Have you been writing anything specific? I'm always writing and I'm, I'm always, I'm writing this book about Ralph Waldo Emerson. I'm starting yeah. that at the moment. So I'm doing a lot of research on that and taking notes. And I'm always writing talks, um, blogs, and, and, and various things. It's just a kind of a part of my everyday life. I've interviewed a couple of people who write and are into storytelling. And I'd be interested to know, do you have a, a routine when you're writing? Is there a plan for your day that you like to stick to? Yes, I, I have. I'm very kind of like a banker with my hours. I, I, I get started same time in the morning, mostly about the same time in the morning. I take my break. I come back. I, I come, I have a couple of hours in the afternoon. I've learned over the years what works for me. Yeah. Uh, and because we all have to find that rhythm that works for us and a, and a discipline that feels flexible. And that's the thing about a lot of folks rebel against discipline because they're too hard or unrealistic on themselves. So I'm pretty loose as long as I show up and do something you know, for three hours in the morning and the same in the afternoon, I'm okay. I don't count the number of words that I'm writing and I don't hold myself to that tight a schedule in that sense, because then you, then it becomes oppressive and writing books are a long-term effort. Mm -hmm. So you have to do, you have to find a sustainable routine for a year, year and a half, something that's really, you can really live with that makes yeah. you happy. 
So that's that's I found what works for me. Are you in the early stages then of writing the book about Ralph Waldo Emerson? I am. I, it's a book I've wanted to write for 20 years. I've been reading, reading, reading. I've got mountains of <laughs> notes. And now I'm gathering my, my materials and I'm actually going to start the writing itself in the next few weeks. And uh, hopefully it'll be out in 2022. That's that's my uh, that's my intention. That's cool. How do you manage all your research notes? I've been reading about something. I think it's called Zettelkasten, and it's kind of like an index card system, and it's just a way of logging information and being able to cross-reference it. But it's quite an analog process. So I wondered how how do you manage your research? <laughs> the old fashioned way I, I print it out and I put it on my wall, you know, oh, right. and I highlight and then I dive in and it, it's never a neat process. And I admire folks who can use these programs and Scrivener and all these people are always saying, what, you know, what program do you use? I use Word, <laughs> Microsoft Word, uh, and I print things out on hard copy because it's hard to really remember until you, for me until I see it on the page. And then you dive in and you get that it's it's going to be messy. You're going to drop things and forget that and that. You can you can bring that into the second draft. So once you've been doing this a while, this is my eighth book, I think. And once you've been doing it, you get that it's never going to be anywhere near right the first time through. And that's extremely liberating. So I, I, have a sen- I have a sense of the structure and I have masses of material. I will write it through and then I'll go back and I'll see all the things that I missed. And then I will, you know, insert and delete. And, you know, then the evolution of it starts. It always changes radically. I'm a big rewriter. I usually do at least four or five drafts of things. Oh, right. And do you do you just start writing your book in Word or do you journal um, writing notebooks or is it you sat in front of a computer? I do. I mean, I journal uh, by hand very often, but uh, no, I, I do my writing on computer. I've just been doing it for too long. I can't work fast enough in a journal or, or with, you know, with long hand. I just I, and and I find it more confusing. So no, I start on I start on my trusty computer. I create a file that's the name of the book, and then everything starts going into it. And then I I weed and I shape and I feel my way through. That's the fun part. You know, once 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 I've done this, the preparation, which will be done in a couple of weeks, then the fun part is you get to dive in and start being creative with all of this. And then that I enjoy. And then when you finish the first draft, then the work begins. I mean, then the really hard work begins of of you know killing your darlings, all the things, the things you absolutely love, slash burn, and shaping it. You know, that and that that takes a long time. And that's something that folks, particularly first-time authors, don't always appreciate is how long. It takes. And that's why I always say to my writing students, if you're not willing to do at least three revisions of whatever it is you're doing, don't bother. You know, everything takes, re- you know, writing is rewriting. The, mm-hmm. the cliche is really true. So if you're not willing to put in a year or two minimum on a book, don't, you know, write short stories, write blogs, do essays, write articles, but don't try writing a book because it's a long distance run. And you need to prepare for that from the beginning, because I hear a lot of people have this, are so shocked. It's like, I thought I would be done and now. When I always <laughs> laugh when I get these things, you know, write your memoir in three months. And I always, I, just, I shake my head. I don't know what they're selling exactly. I don't know what bill of goods exactly they're, they're yeah. selling. 
So how long have you been teaching writing? I've been teaching writing uh, about 10 or 11 years. And I never planned to be a, a teacher. I was just, I was an author writer for years. And someone asked me to, to do a class at a college near in, in New York. And I really loved it. It was one of these strange things. I thought, oh, okay, I'll do this writer. It was called Writer's Week. So I'll go in, I'll teach this class, I'll wing it. And you know, then go back to writing. And something happened for me. I, I not only connecting with the students, but realizing that I actually knew something after, you know, like 30 years of like beating your head against the wall of your office, you learn things. And then to be able to share them is really, uh, is really a pleasure. So now I spend about half my time uh, teaching. I teach online. I teach workshop when one can travel. I, I, I usually teach retreats and workshops in Europe and around the States. That's about half my life. And the other half of my life is my, my writing life. I, I, I need both now to, I, I really enjoy the balance of both. I've seen a lot, I get your emails and I've seen a lot of the fantastic retreats that you have all over the place and they sound fantastic. It was, it was just really great for me to be able to do that workshop the other weekend. And I think what fascinated me was it wasn't so much about the writing, but it was about exploring the questions and I found that really interesting. And it was kind of a bit unexpected in a way. Better than expected. Oh, good. It, well, it was unexpected. Oh, and it unexpected. Was, yeah, but it was better than expected. I loved it. Um, oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. But it was, I loved the way you, the questions that you asked and how it made me think. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, obviously writing stuff, but yeah, it was very much about the questions for me. And yeah. Yeah, I just thought that was really great. I'm so glad, I'm so glad. And, and it really is, it's about self-inquiry. It's about using writing as a, as a, as a path of self-inquiry, as a tool for self-knowledge. And that's what I love doing more than anything. I started as a memoir teacher because I, was a, I am a memoirist. And I found that I actually enjoy the self-inquiry work more. Uh, and so for, I always think of it as I'm helping people become the writer who, the person who can write the book, you know, the person who, who, who can develop the honesty, the insight, the, the courage, the self-belief to do the hard work of, of writing. So I think of what I do as a bit of a precursor to the actual writing itself. And I, I still teach write a memoir as well, but even with memoir, I'm only interested in books that are asking questions, asking deep questions about life i mean why else write why else read so folks folks sometimes come to you with a an, this incredible life story you know they were brought up in here and they grant and they think that that's a book they think that's a memoir and i always tell them there's the situation and then there's the story the situation is what happened to you the memoir is why it matters and if you haven't touched into why these experiences matter what they add up to what are the themes you know, what are the big questions driving you, driving the narrator of the memoir? If you haven't asked those questions, it's going to be pretty shallow stuff. Of course, if you're a famous person writing a memoir, though, those are different criteria. But I'm talking about a person who is writing, trying to write literary memoir. It has to go deep. If it doesn't go deep, it doesn't, it doesn't last and it doesn't matter. So that's why I, I like to do the self-inquiry work alongside the memoir work. Uh, people really people get to very you know very honest truthful places they find the story inside the story you know they yeah. come to you thinking oh i'm I, for example a woman came to me a couple of years ago i was teaching at esalen out on the west coast in california and she said i want to write a book about my father i said cool 
tell me about it. She tells me about it. I said, this isn't about your father. This is about you. This is about your response to what happened to your father. And at first she was like, no, no, no. I don't want to write about myself. I want to write about him. This is a tribute. This is for his legacy. And I said, okay, you know, do, do whatever you want to do. And I, she went off, she wrote the memoir. She made it about herself and it has done really well. I got something from her yesterday. She just won an award for it, you know, but she thought had she gone the direction she wanted, it would have been kind of a so-so book about her immigrant father. Instead, she, it became a book about race and gender and identity. And, 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 and she lost none of the original father stuff, but it, but it was grounded in her own experience. That's just an example of when you find the story inside the story. Yeah. 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 That could be very exciting. Yeah. That's, it's interesting to think about that. Who um, inspires you? Who inspires me? Ah, that's a long list. <laughs> in, in what area? I know that you did some work with Ram Das. Yeah. And you've also met and written a book about Mother Mira. I've met Mother Mira as well. I've done Darshan, a, a monastery in Manchester. I was interested to hear more about Mother Mira. However you want to answer it, really, what's been important to you? I'm somebody who takes a lot from wherever I see strength or some or courage, I really focus on it and, and I get something from it. I'm, I'm sort of susceptible to it. Mm -hmm. So I can, I can tell you that my, my younger sister, having survived what she survived and living the life she lives and being as loving and amazing as she is, she is an, an insp a deep inspiration to me about what's possible when people are, are strong in the power of the heart, you know, to transcend things. And I have many heroes in my personal life who are, who are like that. They're resilient, deeply resilient people. And then I've been fortunate enough to meet some extraordinary uh, spiritual teachers, literary people uh, like Ram Dass. I did a book with him after he had his stroke, uh, mm -hmm. which was which was a, an amazing experience. Uh, one of my dear friends is Eve Ensler, who wrote the Vagina Monologues, and she's yeah. a fantastic activist. She's in terms of activism, I find her the most inspiring person in my life. Activists are a unique breed; they're really particular. It's a particular kind of person, and you have to have that gene you have to have that thing but if it if there's need if there's pain eve is there you know she's she's organizing she's setting up funds she's traveling she's this is what who she is so i think that's great um and i find it that endlessly uh, inspiring mother mira is inspiring simply because of her presence well, when i met her in the 80s mid 80s i had never met anyone who was in a state of what i would call grace uh, however you want to define that, enlightened, uh, avatar, they have all kinds of names for people who are in this holy state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And she is, uh, and, and I'm a skeptical person. And I came to her as an atheist without any religious or spiritual background. Uh, and I could see plainly that she was in a, a state unlike anything I had seen before. And that really started me uh, when I went to India after that, I started you know, getting into meditation and exploring different states of consciousness. And she was for me that door, she was the window into that possibility. Oh, you know, you, this is what a human being can be like, you know, this kind of love, this kind of detachment, this kind of support, and it, it blew my mind. And so I've been seeking out that experience with for myself and also through other teachers, Forever, you know, Eckhart Tolle is one of my favorite teachers. Rupert Spira is one of my 
favorite teachers. I'm endlessly moved by Tara Brock, who's a dear, is a friend. Sharon Salzberg is a friend. She's a wonderful teacher. Thomas Moore, who I just interviewed for the Seekers Forum, is a, a, a wonderful writer and thinker, uh, author of Care of the Soul. Uh, and I just spoke to him a couple, Stephen Batchelor, I, I talked to a couple of months ago, who's who's the great Buddhist renegade uh, and agnostic, who's completely brilliant, uh, has a new book out on solitude. And he has the, the, the gall to talk about his recreational drug use in this <laughs> book and ayahuasca and cannabis. And he's the first Buddhist teacher that I know of to come out honestly and talk about his psychotropic <laughs> substance use. And that's very brave. So folks should check out his new book on solitude. It's, it's powerful. So I'm moved by a whole lot of people. And be, also because I've been a journalist, you know, I've, been, I've just had, had the opportunity to interview a lot of great people. Mm. And that, that has been a real privilege for me. Have you got any funny stories of people that you've interviewed? <laughs> I have a lot of funny, a lot of funny stories. What, what genre of story <laughs> and what kind of person? Um, I don't know, just something that, you know, stuck in your mind maybe. And oh, Well, I mean, just interview, just working with Ramdas for that year. Yeah. You know, he, he was, he was, he's, he's this spiritual lion, you know, this, this, this wonderful philanthropist doing this great work. And when I met him, he had just had a major stroke and he was in a wheelchair and a lot of pain. So I met a per, I met a human being, you know, who was struggling and really trying to find his way through this experience where suddenly he went from being a helper to somebody who couldn't, you know, couldn't go to the bathroom by himself. We had a lot of funny experiences. You know, he, he was he was a he was a trip, literally, and uh, he could be really difficult. So, funny experiences. Yes, a lot of people behave in ways that we wouldn't expect them to behave because we tend to idealize or idolize, particularly spiritual teachers. But mm -hmm. every spiritual teacher I've ever met has flaws. Yeah, they have vices. They have particular they have peculiarities. To be human is to be contradictory. Yeah, and so every single one of them has been a mixed bag, and as such, they behave. Sometimes they behave badly. You know, sometimes they're impatient. Uh, sometimes they stand you up. You know, I mean, I think a lot of I've had I don't I've had a lot of you know mixed experiences with spiritual teachers yeah. as well. So yeah. it, it's actually been good because I'm not somebody to idolize. I don't sort of put people on a dais. So for me, it, it, it wasn't that shocking to see that people have flaws. To me, it's actually more, it's, it's, it's inspiring to see that a person can be so compassionate and loving, so devoted to practice and doing good in the world and struggle with these, you know, with these human foibles and, and difficulties. I find that moving. I, to me, yeah. it doesn't detract. For perfectionists, that kind of blows the image. Oh, he drinks wine or he smokes pot or he, <laughs> oh, you know, it's no, no good. But when you see, look at it in a more subtle way, you know, you realize that that it's that's just your ego projection of what a spiritually perfect person looks like. Mm. If you go to if you go to India, you know, they don't have that kind of thing with their teachers. They understand that their teachers are just people, and that actually helps them with their devotion. It deepens devotion. We we can be a little moralistic and purist in the West. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's well, it's interesting that you say that, and I'm always interested in mavericks. Mm. Um, I like sort of people who follow their own path and maybe do things a bit differently. And 
most mavericks have got flaws. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I suppose it's it's that same type of thing. Would you consider yourself to be a spiritual person? Is that an important part of your life? I think it's the core of my life. It really is in terms of it's what has always driven me. You know, when you you look back at your life and you see that there were patterns that you weren't aware of at the time. Yeah. When I look at myself as a little, a little kid, I was a seeker. I didn't know what it was called, but I was always asking too many questions. I was brooding over big questions and what does it all mean? And this kind of stuff. When I was a child, it took me a lot of years to realize, oh, I'm a part of a tribe of people. That's the kind of a person a seeker but that so that for me has always been what drove me it's what drove, has driven me as a writer it's what's driven me as a as a human being and so i would say yes that's it's it's the thing that stands up uh at the end of the day Ramdas used to say the only thing that increases with age is wisdom everything else falls by the wayside but wisdom can actually increase as mm -hmm. you get older and i really heard that that's been what moves me uh, and also the people in my life, the closest people in my life, what, what we share is that we are seekers. We're interested in asking questions. We want to grow. We want to learn. We share that. So for me, that's real. That's precious. It's more precious than being a writer. It's more precious than being a part of any other group. What do you think is coming next for you? What's What are your plans for the next thing that you're going to do? I know you're doing the book, but have you got any other plans that you'd like to have happen? I do. I'm busy. I've got a lot of upcoming online classes. I'm teaching a lot of webinars. Now with this pandemic, we're doing so much more online. So I'm doing week a weekly drop-in writing class, which I've never done before, which I've really loved. People are enjoying a lot. You know, I have various, I have various commitments. A lot of my my gigs this year were canceled because of the virus and have gone online. So for example, like like the alternatives mm -hmm. uh, gig and um, I have a lot of that this year, uh, and it's, but as far as traveling, I'm not sure what's going to be happening happening with, with traveling. This for me is it's this is a, like for most of us, it's a time of being home, deepening, doing a lot of things that I have put aside that I haven't had time for. It's an inward time. I'm happy for that. I'm mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a natural introvert, so I'm I'm I don't I don't mind being alone and quiet. And I'm not alone. I'm in a couple, but. Mm -hmm. quiet and surrounded by nature. I don't need to be busy all the time. So this this is this is this is really welcome for me. It's interesting that you say you're an introvert. I mean, I'm an introvert, but I kind of I don't know, I didn't think of you as an introvert. People always say that. <laughs> <laughs> I must be a good actor. No, the the truth is that I've learned that I've learned over years how to be in front of people speak, you know, do public speaking and move into, go into a classroom with a bunch of strangers. And that used to really affect me. But I said to myself, this is my work. If I'm going to do this, I need to learn how to do this. I can do it now. I don't feel any nerves with public speaking. I can, I can, you know, meet folks, but given my druthers, I would rather be alone. You know, given my druthers, I'm the person who doesn't want to go to the party. Yeah, uh, I, I'm the person who well, can we just do this one on one? That's how I truly am. But professionally, I had to get over it because I didn't want it to hold me back. I was reading. Now, let me I might get this wrong. I think it was when you're falling dive and you mentioned Andrew Harvey. The quote was they would discover their real face in the mirror. Mm. And I just liked that, that there's this element of us actually seeing ourselves properly 
Yeah. What what does that mean to you? Well, it's funny you would ask that because that was my first spiritual practice. Aside from writing in my journal and, and that kind of work, I used to, as a kid, I used to lock it myself into the bathroom and I would stare in the mirror and I would ask myself questions. This is how I grew up in a house where there was a lot of craziness and I was very isolated as a kid. But I started to do that because I would notice that when I spoke to myself, first of all, I could see how I was by looking at my face in a way that you can't always feel it inside. You look at your face, sometimes it's quite obvious how you're actually feeling. But I would ask myself questions and I would know more than I thought I did. I, I would sort of ask, I'd become my own confessor, kind of. That's what that reminds me of because I felt like I could touch on something true in myself in the, in, in the literal mirror, in the actual you know, physical mirror. Mm -hmm. uh, what Andrew was talking about, and that's an old idea, and that's a Buddhist idea, is that we have a true identity, a true self that is the awareness behind our personality. Uh, and that when we can look into a mirror, if it's a mirror of, of spiritual practice or a literal mirror, and detect that part of us that's not limited to our little, the little ego, that's where, that's where the liberation comes from. Uh, and that, so that's what Andrew was talking about, seeing your true self in the mirror, your luminous, awake, you know, consciousness that isn't diminished by the ups and downs of your everyday life. It's always there. Mm -hmm. You know, the part of me that the self that was looking in the mirror when I was seven, eight years old is the same self I am now. The body is completely different, but that self has not changed. The mm -hmm. self that went to New York, the self that went to India, the self that wrote, a, wrote that book or that book, it's the same self. That's the true self. And we all have that. And, and without getting too metaphysical, my true self is the same as yours. That's the, and then when you get that, that's when you really get what unity is, is, is about. Well, I call it essence. Mm. And I've been thinking again this week a lot about if everybody could tap into their essence, if they could mm. see that and do the work that enables them to align with it then it would be the start of having this better understanding of our oneness yes absolutely but if you're not in touch with your own essence you're not open to other people's essences either because you're yeah. playing on the on the on the personality level uh, and the ego level of competition and fear and desire of being thrown back and forth by the emotions but that essence isn't thrown around by your emotions the essence stands behind the emotions, uh, is able to navigate through the emotions. Mm. It's the essence that doesn't forget who we are in crisis. It's important nowadays, particularly, mm. for people to remember this essence and not think that their lives depend on you know, some of the external trappings that, you know, that are necessarily now going to change. I talk about how we need to sort of bring ourselves into alignment. So, you know, if you're doing a job perhaps that you don't enjoy and it's not really what you're meant to be doing, then you're sort of out of kilter. Mm. And let me see if I can get my hands on my screen here. There you go. So if you sort of, you're out of kilter, it's bringing mm. them together. And that's what I think is aligning our essence to our behavior and our truth and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, it's for me, it's been a process that I've gone through and it's been triggered sometimes by my pivotal moments that have given me a greater understanding of that. Mm -hmm. As I've gone through life and I've had things happen, right. um, you know, like 
different losses or bereavements or different sort of changes that have impacted me in my life. Mm. I think they've been catalysts that have brought me to a better understanding of who I am and have helped me align more with my essence. Absolutely. Because they test us. Yeah. And every time you come across, come to one of these crossroads, it, 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 it's a test. You know, and, and it's a test. Are you going to be true to yourself or are you just going to fall apart and give up? You know, and having to get through difficult times throws us back on that essence, you know, again and again. The losses of my life have been my greatest gifts and my greatest guides and my greatest teachers. Yeah. There's absolutely no question about it. You know, some people learn through the via positiva. Some people learn more through the via negativa. You know, and, and most of us on the spiritual path will, will admit, if we're honest, that the cha true change comes when through loss. It comes when this happy story is shaken up that we don't until that's shaken up. We don't tend to look behind the happy story under what's for what's underneath it. So we don't welcome these things when they happen. But when they do, you always you also recognize the potential of it. And that's the beauty of being a seeker, because even when even when you you have a, you have pain in your life, there's a piece of you that's observing it, yeah, trying to learn from it. What is this? In what information is here for me? What is yeah. this telling me about where I'm overattached? What is this telling me about where I want to where I need to heal or my own confusion? So it's a, it's an odd thing. When, you know, one doesn't want to seek out misfortune; it finds you anyway. Yeah. Uh, but when it does, you can you can see it in that in that light. So it's not without denying. It's not about denying your feelings, but it's about acknowledging that there's also the potential for, for insight in the loss. Absolutely. Yeah, I really agree with that. Um, I've seen it, you know, a lot in my life. And um, I think I've got to the point, like you say, where I look at things now and I'm seeing this bigger picture of what's happening around me um, mm. from that, you know, perhaps that one event. Let me just ask you one last question. What would you like your legacy to be? Mm, that, that's a, that's a com that's an interesting question. Funny for a memoir writer, I don't ask myself that question. <laughs> um, I think I want to be. I want my mem my legacy to be that I uh, was brave. That I tried really really hard and failed a lot, but really tried hard. That my my heart was in the right place. I've been instrumental in bringing a lot of wisdom into the world in terms of you know people I've spoken to and and as well as some of the work that I've done and and kind. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, I, one wants to be remembered as 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 kind and relatively awake, at least on the right side of of the at least on the right side of the struggle. Well, Mark, it's been such a joy talking to you. And thank you, Nicola. It's, it's been an absolute privilege for me. It really has. And I've loved our conversation. Me too. I'm glad we could meet face to face. Yeah. Thank you so much for being my guest. My pleasure. Be well. I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast as much as I did. You can find me online at Seed to Source. And if you'd like to share your story of personal change, do get in touch. Thanks for listening. And I hope you have a wonderful week.